Welcome to Voices in Physics, a podcast that explores the culture in physics through interviews with people in the field. So thank you so much for sitting down. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about these experiences. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? I am a lecturer at a large uh, state university in the United States. Um, I grew up in Mexico, and um, I am the eldest of four kids in Mexico, and I'm the oldest um, girl in my cousin's cohort, and so that's that's important in my upbringing, um, because Mexican girls are kind of expected to become the caretakers of everyone else. And I know how to say this, like, secondary mom to all my cousins. Um, they do what I say, <laughs> but at the same time, I'm expected to babysit for them um, anytime we're together, and so uh, I went to school in Mexico. I always went to a private school all the way through college. And then I came to the United States for my PhD. Um, I did it at a large state university and large R1 university on the East Coast. And then I did one postdoc um, at a private university. Then I started teaching. I started first teaching at a private university and then now I'm um, at a large public university as a lecturer. And um, I know you asked me about any um, identities. So I identify as a heterosexual, a cisgender woman. Uh, like I said, I'm Mexican. I also identify as Latino. I think it's the uh, most common word here in the United States. So uh, it's different. So I'm specifically from Mexico. But here in the United States, I kind of get grouped with everyone else from Latin America even though it's like 42 different countries, <laughs> uh, here we're all treated the same. And so that presents its own unique challenges. Um, I am an immigrant, and that is important because I live in a culture that's very different from the one that I grew up in. And so navigating that is uh, an important part of my day-to-day -day life. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Um, so to start off with, what got you into physics? And what got me into physics? Um, Physics was my least favorite subject in high school. I really did not like physics. Um, I really liked math. Um, but for some reason, the way physics was taught in high school, I just, it did not seem appealing to me. I wanted to go to medical school. So in high school, I took like advanced biology and advanced chemistry and all those classes, but not advanced physics. Um, but then the summer before college, I changed my mind. I decided, or I realized, I guess, that I'm not a people person. So I decided that I might not be, a, might not make a good physician because you have to t actually treat patients and talk to them and their families. So um, I went with my second choice, which was um, engineering. And then I was in between engineering physics or chemical engineering, and I ended up going to engineering physics at a private school in Mexico. And my parents did not understand that choice because they didn't know what engineering physics did. I just told them like they work in the oil company and they get paid really well so um, I'm gonna be fine. And I really got into physics at the end of my first semester where I, I realized that my uh, classmates in the same major who were taking the honors course which I was not taking they seemed to like the honors course seemed to have like a lot more math involved but also a lot more concepts. Uh, so it wasn't just pattern matching or trying to replicate whatever the professor did on the blackboard. It was more about thinking about what's going on. And I was really, 
attracted to that. So I switched to the honors courses, and then I've loved it ever since. So that that was it. You say that you realized right before going to college that you didn't want to go into something that required you to be a people person. Right. Did something happen to make you realize that about I yourself? Don't, I don't think there was a specific incident. Like, I stumbled upon the major engineering physics, like a, a friend of mine who's also a physicist, by the way, um, in high school, he saw a brochure and he was like, oh, I read this and I thought about you and I thought it was going to be great. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just glanced at it and I'm like, no, I'm going to medical school. So I just put it away. And I think finding it in, you know, the big pile of papers that I had in my room kind of make me rethink, like, do I really want to be a doctor? What does that entail do I really want to do that? And the only doctors I knew were like my pediatrician and he's Mm -hmm. great with kids and he's, you know, always talking to the moms and always making jokes. And I'm like, I'm not like that. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think I'll be good at that kind of job. Okay. Um, So that's what made me rethink. In terms of role models in your family, because in in a way this was sort of a a reverse role model. It was someone that you realized you didn't want to be or didn't feel like you could be. Right. Um, what did the, was there an opposite force in your upbringing or? Um, not really. Like I did something that no one in my family had ever done. So my parents were the first ones in our family to go to college. Um, my, my mom was the first woman to go to college. Like her brothers went to college, um, but she was the first woman and I was the second one. And then my dad was the first one ever and I was the second one. So, um, my parents viewed going to college as a way to get a better paying job. So it wasn't so much for them about what do you want to be or what do you want to be doing. Just, you know, jump through the hoops, get the degree so you get better pay. So, yeah, I didn't really have any role models. No one in my family had a college degree or an engineering degree that I could look up to. And what about in um, pop culture? I think that's even worse. <laughs> like a scientist in pop culture, they're usually like the villains. I never saw myself as a villain, but I also never saw myself as a scientist in that sense. Um, and then they're really, at least for me growing up in the 80s and 90s, there weren't really any engineers in pop culture. You know, like yeah. there's always, if, if there's a STEM-like character in cartoons or movies, it's always like a, a mad scientist, and they're the bad guy. Right, yeah. Um, there was one, you know, from Mexico. What were they called? I remember Mimoso. That was the name of the mouse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Burbujas. That was the name of the show. Uh-huh. Uh, and there were just, like, people in costumes, different animals. There was a toad. There was a frog. There was a mouse. And, like, their human friend was a mad scientist who was a good guy. Um, I didn't really identify with that guy one of the animals was explicitly like a girl because she wore a dress a pink dress and had a bow I didn't identify with her I always identified with the little guy he was made like the mouse was made to be younger than the other one so he was the one always asking questions and asking why and what happens and so I identified with that character but that's the only memory I have of scientists engineers in culture really being there like they just aren't me and were you aware of the gender gap in STEM when you started? I was not. So I had a very different experience with that prior to college because um, I participated in the math Olympiads in Mexico, and they represented my state in the nationals. 
And in math in Mexico, about half of mathematicians are, are women. So I don't know, I had this idea of like the, the nerdy kids uh, who are into math, like it's a 50-50 gender ratio. It's not, it's right that the women are not underrepresented. And then I go to engineering and, you know, it's like maybe 20% are women. Um, and our class was uh, unusual in that about a third of us were women for, for that class. And so in a way I was shielded from knowing about the gender gap. Um, it wasn't until I'd say my senior year in college that I started really looking at the other classes, the other engineers, um, the physicists when I was applying to grad school that, oh yeah, there aren't a lot of women in this field. So it seems like having even that difference between 30 and 20 percent yeah, that felt was, very different that to you. felt really different. Yeah, once you had entered more spaces where you were, you could see that you were a gender minority, did you also feel like that you were noticing incidents of, of bias? Um, yeah. I, again, I, I took it as just par for the course, I guess, because I didn't really interact with my uh, male classmates as classmates. So that's why I think the 30%, having my class be 30% women was, was significant in the sense that I could always find another girl to do projects with, to study for the test with. So I didn't have to, um, you know, be classmates or, you know, have any professional interaction with any of the guys. In the few classes that I did take, I had to take, like, computer science, uh, like a com- computer programming class. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, you know, a 10% woman, roughly. And so there, like, I did have to, at some point, talk to the guys. And then the interactions are usually, like, go make me a sandwich. Or <laughs> um, not that explicit, but, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, we should go get dinner. Or, you know, we could go to my place. And instead of saying that they'll cook, they'll say, oh, you can cook dinner. I'm like, I'm not going to cook dinner for you. Like, <laughs> We're doing, you know, we're doing a project. Let's meet at the library so we can work. Um, So there were a lot of off comments like that, Mm. which I didn't take to be like from colleagues because I, I don't know, like, I think they didn't see me as a colleague. So then I, my initial response was to just like not see them as colleagues. So this is a guy hitting on me that I just have to, I don't know how to say this, like uh, suffer through (laughs) so that I can get my project finished and then I'll move on with my life and he won't be part of it. So. I don't care. And has that persisted to now? Pretty much, yes. Um, no one hits on me anymore, um, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is a good, but they still, I ha- I'm not old enough to, like, I have older friends and mentors and say that once you th- turn 50, you become ma'am, and they start treating you like a mom or a grandmom. <laughs> I have not experienced that, but they've warned me it's coming. So instead of hitting on you, they kind of expect you to clean up after them. So you'll be working, and then they'll just leave the office or leave the meeting room and leave whatever their cups behind or their scrap paper behind or their pencils behind. And the expectation is, you know, mommy's going to take care of it. Um, like, I, like I said, this hasn't happened to me, but pretty much everyone who's 50 and over has warned me that it will happen. How does that make you feel? Um, I don't know. Am I allowed to swear? <laughs> Same shit, different day. Um, like, I'm so used to it now that I just, I either just ignore it. So that has been my 
you know, it's like, oh, this is a kind of meeting where we all leave our trash behind. Fine. I'll leave my trash behind. You know, I'm not going to clean up after other people. Or I clean up after myself. And then, you know, some, especially the younger guys, kind of pick up on that. It's like, oh, right, we have to clean up our trash. You know, or, you know, yeah, that's, that's right. the kind of way I, I, I don't fall into those roles that I haven't experienced as much. But the ones that I've experienced in the past, those are the ones that I just let it happen because it's going to be five minutes of my time. Can you, wait, and what do you mean? Can you? Well, things that I've experienced in the past, like people hitting on me, like that doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, I'll go to a conference and someone's like, so you're here alone. I'm like, yeah, I'm here for work and I'm going to see some friends and I'm waiting for my colleagues because it's work. Mm-hmm. And then just that shuts down that whole conversation. So it's like, I'd rather that didn't happen at a conference. Like I don't go to conferences to flirt. Right. Yeah. Um, but again, it's like, okay, it's happening. Let's deal with it. I'll move on. Do you see a way to somehow communicate to men generally that these types of behaviors are not okay? Because um, it, you know, it's kind of distracting for you, and it it is. And I don't, yeah. I don't know how to do it. Like I know that so mentoring the next generation, um, it's very important so that we can talk to our grad students and undergrad students that work in projects with us. We, I think, part of the task that we're giving as mentors is to get them initiated in like how to behave professionally. And so making sure that your interactions are kept professional and, you know, define exactly what does that mean, right? So there's been a lot of confusion. Like if you go to a bar after a conference, it's like, no, you're still at a conference. You're still, you know, in work mode. You're not there to flirt. If you want to exchange emails and then flirt after the conference is over, then that's okay. But somehow this needs to be told explicitly to the people we're mentoring. And then there's the other, you know, kind of swimming against the tide and that it doesn't matter how many times uh, we say it to our, the people we're mentoring, they see the older professors behave the way we told our students not to behave. And then it's like, well, you kind of just undid everything that I just did. But yeah, other than that, and showing by example and being explicit about it, then I don't, I don't know what else we can do. So part of what you're saying is that the older generation is still perpetuating the culture? Yes, By very default, much. almost. Yeah, kind of by yeah. default. And so since no one had the talk with them, so they don't feel compelled to have the talk with whoever they're mentoring. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also don't see that they're not behaving, uh, you know, in a professional way. Has anything ever been so unprofessional and blatant that you felt you needed to report to it? To report it? Um, or did you, do you talk to people about these things? Not really. I mean, I talked to my spouse about this. Um, he's also a physicist, so... But, and I, I mean, I talked to friends who are also physics in, in engineering. But other than that, I don't think anything has happened that would make me think, oh, that needs to be reported. But at the same time, like I said, I'm not a people person, so I'm not very tuned in to social interactions. So I don't really get that something inappropriate is happening. Um, I just feel uncomfortable, and I don't separate that Uh, being uncomfortable with my general social anxiety, being uncomfortable in social situations. So it's only after uh, talking to other people, thinking about it for a few days that I realized, oh, that was inappropriate. So then I think there's this, (laughs) I don't know how to say this. There's a delay. There's a delay in figuring out that's inappropriate. So then by that time, by the time I figure out it was wrong, then 
there's really no recourse to to go and you know tell some authority or something. Like I don't think anything that has happened to me has been that bad. But if it did, I don't think I would still report it because I, it will take me a few mm-hmm. days to figure it out. Can you imagine any way to restructure reporting that allows for this delay? I don't know. I mean, maybe letting people report things that happened even after the conference mm-hmm. is over. But then I don't know if any then further consequences other than, you know, maybe just collecting, da- collecting data. And then if the same individual gets reported mm-hmm. in multiple conferences, then, okay, maybe we should do something about that. So maybe something like that, but it will be more, even yeah. more delayed <laughs> and like, yeah. or more meta, I think, than yeah. just this incident, deal with it. And, and then we're done, but rather collecting data and seeing everything holistically, mm-hmm. um, maybe in that kind of view. And these behaviors in which someone's hitting on you at a conference or these kinds of things, you said it makes you feel uncomfortable, but does it ever make you feel unsafe? I don't think I've ever felt unsafe. I don't tend to, I'm not a very social person, so I don't tend to go to bars with people or stuff like that, um, or people I don't know. So it's I'm usually hanging out with like really close friends. Um, and or like at the lobby of the hotel or, you know, right outside the conference room or the poster sessions. So I never feel unsafe because it's always in a very public place, which is also why I think like I'm not in a, a party animal. So I don't like go to parties. So I'm never in a position where everyone's drunk and like slurring their words like that. So things that happen in that context have not happened to me because I'm never in that context. But uh, I've never felt unsafe because it's always been in a public place with a whole bunch of people. Are there any other incidents either in grad school or at conferences? So um, this happened when I was in graduate school. I went to a national conference. And so I'm there wearing my suit and the big batch with the conference name. And I'm in the bathroom and I was washing my hands, I think. I was, you know, in the entrance of the bathroom. And there were a couple other women there. And this woman came out of the stalls and kind of looked around. And then she looked directly at me and told me that one of the stalls was broken. And so I'm like, um, it took me a while to process it, like with all the other ones. But then it dawned on me, like I was the only like brown woman there. I don't think she thought much about this. It was like a spur of the moment decision. But it was really interesting that instead of saying, hey, girls, that stall's broken, don't use it. She told me specifically that that stall was broken. Um, so the, the one Latina woman is the one that should know, even though I'm I'm clearly like not custodial because I'm wearing a suit, and so I'm a participant I mean, in the conference. It seems like the understanding was that you would somehow take care of it, or I that would, you needed to know. Right, that I was the one that needed to know. So it yeah. wasn't like a public service announcement. It was say, I need to tell someone. Oh, I'm going to tell her for some reason. Um, okay, because the way you imitate this woman telling you this information, it sounds almost as if she wants you to go fix it or something. Right, like I was the one. Either I was the one who was going to fix it or I was the one who was going to know who to tell her to fix it. Yeah. So that's why that's why I think like she kind of thought I was custodial staff. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, even just to cursory look at my appearance, we're like, you know, she's probably not here cleaning toilets. What did she what um, did you say in response? I didn't say in response. She just told me this and left. And I just stood there in awe, like, why would you yeah, tell me? Right. And I'm like, oh, wait, that, that's nice to know. I won't use that stall. Right. Um, but, you know, thinking more about it, you know, in the hours afterwards, is like, it wasn't a public service announcement, right? So it wasn't like she knew the bathroom stall was broken. He's like, oh, I'm just going to let these women know, hey, don't use that one because it's broken. When you realized what she'd done, 
I, I, what was that effect on you? It was it was weird. Growing up in Mexico, I usually joke about this. Growing up in Mexico, being a Latina is not an issue. Um, so I didn't really ex- experience this kind of racism until I moved to the United States. Mm-hmm. So that has an additional layer of me not really realizing what these interactions are because I didn't grow up in this culture, so I'm not used to this kind of racism or this kind of uh, biases. So it was like, wait, why would she think I was I was wearing a suit? Like that that would be the relevant thing in Mexico. If I if I'd been there wearing jeans and a t-shirt, then people would say, well, you were wearing but you <laughs> you look at the people's clothes and if they're wearing a suit, then they're probably important. So, right? right so that's how you tell people apart and it was confusing to me. Like I didn't at first realize why until, you know, okay, view this from the eyes of an American. A white oh, American. Well, yeah. yes. It's the Latina part that yeah. that probably yeah, that was probably what she saw. So Do you have other examples of types of behaviors that you've realized either in the moment or after the fact that like, hmm, that was that was that not. was kind of racist or gendered? <laughs> um something that came up a few months ago talking to a friend um, that happened a lot with me in, in, in graduate school was that as a woman, you know, as a TA, teaching assistant, I would tell something to my students, and then they would go to the male TA and ask a question, and they'll do whatever the male TA did. And so this one semester, I was partnered with this other guy in teaching a lab. And so my background was in engineering, so um, I know how to use all this equipment. I know how to build things. That's kind of my training. And this guy's a theorist. He's really good at math. He's a very nice person, but he doesn't know how to use an ammeter. And so he told all the students the wrong way to connect an ammeter, and fuses are blowing left and right, and he doesn't know what's going on. And the students don't know what's going on. I do, but no one would listen to me. And I think, in retrospect, that it's because I was the woman and they were all paying attention to the man. He was a white man, too, so a Mexican woman, so maybe there's the extra layer of complication there. So that one specific example is like, listen to the engineer. <laughs> That's what I wanted to tell them. But no, they didn't. So we had to get all new multimeters with new fuses for everyone because. Yeah, it <laughs> cost the department money. <laughs> yes. So they wouldn't listen to the right person. Yeah. <laughs> At that time, did you have anyone to talk to about that? Because it sounds very frustrating. It was frustrating. But, you know, once the class was over, it was like, for me, it just like some funny anecdote. I could never connect it the dots with the sexist behavior or maybe the racist behavior of the students not listening to me until a few months ago when I remembered that story. And it's like, oh, right, yes. So, you know, in this case, yeah. it was years later right. that I realized that, that, okay, this was not okay. At the time, it's just it was frustrating but also kind of amusing. Like, okay, fine, don't listen to me. You're, <laughs> you're not going to be able to finish the lab, so... So yeah. You're great. So, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and what about relationships with your grad advisors? How was that? That was, I think, just okay. I was very frustrating with my biology advisor because I didn't have the knowledge that he expected a graduate student to have. Wait, can you explain why you were? Uh, so I was doing my research out outside of campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so my uh, PhD thesis in biophysics. So um, I was doing. Uh, research in a biological lab outside of the university and so my advisor there had an MD PhD so very much biology oriented he was a really good mentor for his postdocs 
mostly because he hired postdocs that were very much like him. So they, they immediately could see where to take the project next, and he would agree with them. And when you say the postdocs were like him, does that mean the way they're thinking as well as? The way, the way they were thinking, okay. um, not necessarily like uh, most of his postdocs were from China, and he's not from China. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a lot of women postdocs, but that's common in biology. Um, so it, it wasn't... It wasn't along racial or gender lines, but just the way of thinking that was uh, similar. He did have some postdocs while I was working in that lab that were not like that, even though they had the right background training, Mm -hmm. but they just couldn't see where he was going. And so those relationships were very, there was a lot of friction in those relationships. He was never happy with those projects because the postdoc couldn't read his mind. That, that, that was the conclusion I drew. And like the postdocs that could finish his sentences, they were the ones that he loved their projects because they were doing exactly what he would have done. Interesting. Um, and I, as a physicist, without any biochemical training, without any biological uh, knowledge, and I had no idea what he was thinking. And I had no idea what protein was important and which one was not. It's like, well, this one's easier to synthesize. I'm going to use that one. And then he got <laughs> mad at me because I should have used the other one because the other one's biologically relevant. Like, <laughs> I don't know that. Um, yeah. So he was very frustrating with my project, and I was very frustrated with not being able to get what my advisor wanted from me. Did you consider switching advisors? No, because it was really hard to get this advisor. At the time I started the, uh, the PhD program, only one professor was doing biophysics. And even then, he didn't have funding for his biophysics students. That's why I ended up working outside of campus doing my research. So it was really hard finding someone to do biophysics with. So I just didn't want to rock that boat. Um, it was very frustrating because I was convinced and everyone around me, like people I talked to in the department, the, you know, the grad studies advisor, I met with him. And he's like, could it just be like interdisciplinary research to just disciplinary differences, the way physicists are used to doing work and the way biologists are used to doing work. And at first I agreed with that statement, but then after seeing several postdocs fail, then that's when I realized, like, you have to already be wired somehow (laughs) the way he's wired to make it work in his lab. So I think that that was a hard part for me. My other advisor, he, I realized afterwards that he's actually very sexist. It's very tough to criticize him because he's genuinely a nice person. So everybody likes him. But then saying, you know what, he's a really bad manager. And he really does treat the men in his group preferentially over the women. And there weren't any incidents with me like that were very serious other than I'm the one who gets coffee and cookies. This is your on-campus advisor? Yeah, my on-campus advisor. Okay. So he wasn't biophysics or anything? He was just... He was in, in uh, physics, okay. and he was trying to, like, change his subfield into biophysics. Okay. But he doesn't have a biology background. I see. Just curious. <laughs> and so he had a lot of uh, women grad students in his group, much more than, like, there were plenty of professors who had zero grand women, <laughs> right? But still, we were mostly expected to do housekeeping, I guess. When it's time to clean the lab... For some reason, it always ended up being the women doing the sweeping the floors. The guys never swept the floors. Hmm. Um, you know, they were like cleaning the microscope or cleaning the laser setup, but they were never doing the wiping and the mopping and the sweeping. It was always a woman who did that. Um, again, this I realized this after many years. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I know of incidents for other grad students, female grad students, 
between them and a male grad student and how the professor always sided with a male grad student. And so oh, I, I never had issues with other students. I see. So if there's a dispute between two graduate students, yeah, the, the advisor would take the side of the man? Yes. Were and, these and scientific disputes or were they... Um, sometimes there were like personal disputes such as, uh, you know, hum, like the schedule for the microscope. Like there's only one microscope. You have to take turns. And so if the person in charge of the schedule suddenly decides, no, you don't get to use a microscope tomorrow, if he did that to another male grad student, then the professor would be like, you know what, he signed up, you have to respect his signing up. But if he did that to a female grad student, the professor would say, well, he's the one in charge of the schedule. And this happened several times to different people. That's very interesting to me because that's a very tangible way in which sexism is affecting a woman's career, several women's (laughs) careers. Yes, and so I don't... Did anyone ever say anything to someone to say, like, hey, listen, this is not fair? Um, I think people complained to him directly. And his response, again, is a very nice guy who's always smiling. And we were like, oh, just brush it off, get over it. You get extra time on the weekend, you'll be fine. Um, which, no, you will not be fine. I suggested to the students who came and asked me for advice as the senior grad students, like, well... You can go to the university. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an UMDIS person for the grad students. And they, they didn't think this was serious enough to take to that to those lengths to fix it. The students didn't? The students didn't think. It's like, I mean, it's just a, a petty dispute between grad students in a group. It's, why should we get like an UMDIS man, you know? But um, this is interesting. I haven't heard this before. So the university actually had... This university has like an ombudsman person. Yeah, there's a person that they hired in the grad school specifically for if you have issues with professors, your advisor, the administration, whatever, you can come to us and they work as a mediator if you want to yeah. to figure out a solution to to your problem. It was it was brand new when I was in grad school there. So, but then you know there's the barrier of that seems like very serious things. So yeah. whereas these kinds of things seem very petty or very little, right, right to bring mm-hmm. someone important in to, yeah. you know, mediate our little family disputes. Yeah. So uh, there, there's that extra barrier. Like that's exactly like this kind of, you know, the professor's not respecting my scheduling is precisely what an ombudsman is there to resolve. Yeah, along exactly. with more serious things, but also the little things. But for some reason, the students didn't didn't see it that way. So it was never really reported or or talked to with someone who would have the power mm-hmm. to mediate or do something about it. And so ultimately, it's the professor, the advisor, who yeah. who decides how this is dealt with. Mm-hmm. Do you have other insta- instances in which the graduate advisors were behaving in a way that wasn't entirely ethical? Because I, I consider that unethical. And that in, yeah, in I think that would be unethical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that. I mean, and that's. That's the thing. Like, at one point, you have to stop making these excuses. Like, I always made an excuse for him. Like, oh, he's clueless. You know, he's like this dorky guy who's always happy. And so he doesn't realize he's being. But, you know, at some point, like, you've been a professor for 10 years and have however many grad students working with you. At some point, you have to be smart enough to see the patterns. And so that, that excuse doesn't, I think, that I've made for him so many years doesn't, doesn't apply anymore. It's like, no, have to. Mm-hmm. Make him responsible for his behavior. Well, one thing that my particular advisor did that I was very unhappy about that I didn't know was wrong or 
I don't know. I don't know how usual it is or how, how common it is, is that he didn't know if he had enough money to pay for his students. He just said, go talk to the lady who's in charge of the grant, and then she'll tell you. And so as an, as an immigrant, I was here on a student visa. And if I'm not a fully enrolled, like full-time in school, I get deported. And if I can't pay tuition, I can't be fully enrolled, so I get deported. And I don't have the money to pay tuition. So I need someone to pay my tuition. So, you know, I tell him, it's like, am I going to be able to work this summer? Yeah, yeah, sure, go talk to, you know, the lady in charge of the managing his grants. And she was like, you're not eligible because you have an outside fellowship. If you want to be able to be paid during the summer, you have to have been on that grant during the school year. So then suddenly I'm not enrolled during the summer, which means my visa is not valid. And I have to scramble to get together like $2,000 to pay my own tuition. And I thought that, you know, that was terrible. But again, at the time, it's like, oh, he's, it's just him being distracted. But then I found out. I contacted previous grad students who were also um, on student visas who just graduated. And both of them told me, oh, yeah, that's what I did every summer. I had to pay my own tuition. And I didn't realize how bad this was until I got a postdoc. And my postdoc advisor very explicitly told me, we have this grant, we have enough money to pay you for one year. If the grant gets renewed, we'll hire you for two years. So that's why your contract is for one year. And I'm like, yes, he knows exactly how much money he has. And, you know, he's letting me know, you know, yes, we offer you a two-year position, but really we only have one year of your salary separated. And so these... I don't know how to say this like this. Oh, I don't know. I don't care. I don't. Mm-hmm. It, it really. Right, those are details. Right. Those are details. Who cares about details? I care about the science. Like those are really important when you're managing your group and how that impacts the people working for you. Um, it impacted me. But again, I didn't really see how poorly managed this was until I saw someone managing it right. It's like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. I know exactly what's going to happen. So that was that was one of the biggest yeah, that's things about my advisor that. And like all the other international students like somehow already knew this. And oh, yeah, that's what I did every year. It happened to me only once because it's only that summer that I graduated. So I needed to be enrolled in order to graduate, which means I need to pay tuition. Um, It was a special circumstance. Is he still working? Yes, he's still. Have you ever thought about filing a complaint Um, or making some sort of report to say this guy (laughs) needs some kind of reprimand? I don't know. Now that I'm further along in my career, my friends are now professors. I know there's no mentoring or training for that. Mm-hmm. Like there's no one telling him that's wrong or that's not the best way to do things. And he has no one to ask. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess he could ask anyone, but it, that's that's one of the topics that is expected to be discussed when you're discussing when you're up for tenure and promotion or Right when you're building your dossier for tenure, no one's evaluating how well you manage your research group. It's all about number of publications and where they published and how many students have graduated and what courses have you taught. Um, it, there's never this other thing of are you a good manager? Are you a good mentor? There's there's no evaluating in that dimension. And so the person, I mean, understandably, the person being evaluated, even if they care about am I a good mentor, they don't know how to bring that up with their senior colleagues because they know that their senior colleagues are not looking at that. So maybe the question, am I a good mentor, is not even important, so I'm just going to keep that question to myself and not bring that up. Right. Criteria for evaluation for promotion sets the values. Right. And that's, that's what the tenured or the future tenured yeah. professors are thinking about. 
And so that's what they worry about. So then I don't, I once asked him specifically, like, do you have any, does anyone train you on how to manage a group? <laughs> and he left and he was like, nope, they just kind of push you in the deep end and they say go did he, did he understand that he, you were making a subtle not so subtle dig at his um, management skills he did he did and okay uh, were but, you very frustrated when you asked that question I was frustrated for someone else like I don't okay. remember the exact incident but I do remember being like okay it must suck to be that grad student yeah. <laughs> dealing with all this bs yeah. uh, it was a lot of administrative things and I dealt with a lot of administrative things with him. He just wouldn't sign papers. Like, I need to graduate, dude. Sign the stupid form. To the point that I actually interrupted a meeting <laughs> for them. Good for you. And, um, you know, I just stood there with a paper and a pen. Like, I need you to sign this paper now. And it was like, I'm at a meeting with another professor. And the other professor just looked at him and it's like, sign the paper. <laughs> it's like, yes, thank you, professor. I've never met. Um, so it really took, in that instance, it took his colleague... Standing yes. up for you. Standing up for me to get him to sign a paper so that I could file it on time. He's really bad at management in general, but time management was also he was always late and he was always triple booked and and again a really nice guy who's always smiling. So it's it's really hard to like mm -hmm. be tough on him on any perspective. Like even the other professors wouldn't get mad that he's always late because he's always late. So I remember when I asked him the question, like, do you receive training on managing your research group? Uh, I was very frustrated with, uh, by the situation for this other student was going through. And she was like, he laughed and he's like, no, no one ever talks about this. You just have to make it up as you go. Which, you know, it's true. Yeah. Now that I've seen it with my friends, my generation is now coming up for yeah. uh, tenure. And it's like, yeah, you just kind of make it up as you go. And as long as you keep publishing, no one asks if you're a good mentor, if you're a good manager. Have you thought about ways to train? Train professors train to be professors? mentors? <laughs> I mean, some mentoring might be good, but I don't know if any... Well, I do know professors who are really good managers, my uh, postdoc advisors. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were awesome. Like, if you get the older professors to mentor the younger professors, this is how I run my group. I don't think the way the older professors run their groups is any better than what the new professors come up with on their own, mm -hmm. right? Just kind of let the pieces fall where, right. where they do. And then yeah. once the, you know, the grad student who knows how to maintain the laser graduates, then the laser just sits there for two years until you get a new grad student who maintains the laser, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's kind of painful. <laughs> it is, it is. Especially the new grad student, right? It's like, get that laser to work. I don't know how... Well, that's your project. Yeah, I've heard very many stories um, like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you learn a lot, but it's not, I don't think it's the most efficient way of training grad students. Have professors take classes on management? I don't think they'd like that, but yeah. <laughs> they'll send them to the business school. Right. Uh, that's sort of like what a, I was thinking. Like a crash course on yeah, how to manage great. your money, how to, yeah. But I don't think they'd like that. <laughs> so. so you're married to a professor, and we just established that you have only one kid. Age three. What is what has that been like to be a mother and and uh, establishing is, a career? And um, I am very privileged in this respect, which is when you know talking about my identities. Yes, it's a very important identity, but it doesn't. It's not one of the identities that comes to mind when I talk about myself as a physicist. I mean motherhood. Motherhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I'm because like I said, I'm blessed. Um, both my husband and I have good paying jobs and we can afford to send our child to um, very good daycare 
that we love, that she loves. And so, yeah, she's in daycare all day, and I'm at work all day. And then um, after 5, I clock out, and then I'm a mom, and I have to go to home and make dinner, which I would do anyway. If you live by yourself, you go home, you make dinner. Now it's more fun because I get to watch cartoons um, and play with my daughter and, and um and read books and do all this fun mom stuff. But I don't think it has impacted the trajectory of my career. Like I'm still doing what I would. The first year was like you're always exhausted because taking care of an infant, even if they're at daycare all day, when you do have them, it's, it's still very much hands-on. But now that she's older, I have enough rest <laughs> to have the mental energy to take on additional projects beyond the classes that I teach. So I think my career is still going the, the same way. But like I said, largely because we can afford really good daycare. Mm-hmm. That's the, the big uh, sticking point. And yeah. I'm, I'm fine with her being in daycare all day. So my, my mom uh, worked. So I grew up with daycare or family or neighbors or mm-hmm. babysitters, you know, taking care of me. So my mom was not with me all the time mm-hmm. or with my siblings all the time. So for me, that's normal. Again, since it's, she's an only child, I think being at daycare with other kids will help her like socialize and build her skills. Sure. So I think it's been a good a good decision. Apart from daycare, were there other things that made it easier for you to be a mother? My spouse, um, <laughs> he is not a typical guy, and which is why I married him. He's very atypical for a Mexican guy in the sense that he cooks, he cleans, he plays with the kid, he changes diapers. He does laundry, he takes out the trash, and not in the the husband helps kind of way, but in the, oh, the trash can's full, I'm going to take the trash out now. Oh, the dishes are dirty, I'm going to do the dishes now. So we we don't share household duties 50-50, but it's more like a 60-40, so I do the 60%, he does 40%, and most of what he does is things that I don't like doing, so he vacuums the rugs, <laughs> I never have to vacuum. I clean the toilets, he never has to clean the toilets. So we have an arrangement, and I think that's helped, because even after daycare, when I go home, all I have to do is, you know, make dinner, he'll do the dishes. And I know for a lot of my friends that are in similar situations, they go home, they make dinner, they do laundry, they do the dishes, they, so they do all the housework. I don't do all the housework, I do most of the housework, but still, a good chunk is done by someone else. Yeah, I can imagine um, that's really helpful. So that's, that has helped really a lot. I like to ask people um, if they feel like they belong. And that means two things. One, as part of the physics community. And also, uh, do you feel like you see the world as a physicist? Do you identify as a physicist? Um, in terms of personally, I identify as a physicist because I've been professionally trained to think like a physicist. So it's kind of hard to shake. I, know, I don't have any specific examples that I think of just off the top of my head, but... You know, something happens, I see, I don't know, the leaves are falling, and if they fall in a particular pattern, I'm like, ooh, pattern. I'm like, ooh, turbulence. Um, so, yes, I see the world as a physicist, definitely. Being part of the physics community, I do feel like I'm part of the physics community. At the same time, I feel like a lot of people don't see me as part of the physics community, especially now that I'm no longer doing research and I'm just, quote-unquote, teaching even the U.S. government doesn't think that's a, <laughs> a reasonable trajectory for someone with a PhD in physics, I found out. Hmm. Um, there's a special kind of green card that you can request by yourself if you have a specific kind of job 
And so like a highly skilled individual, highly skilled, highly educated individual. Mm -hmm. But if you have a PhD in physics, there's like specific jobs that you have to have to qualify for that kind of green card. And teaching is not one of them. Um, <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, I found that out like two years ago. Even though you're teaching? Even though you're teaching university at physics. university level. And the job that I have requires that you have a PhD in physics, according to the U.S. government, that's not a highly skilled, highly educated individual that qualifies for a green card. So, yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. So the U.S. government does not think I'm part of the community of physicists. Um, and I know there are some of my colleagues who would agree with that. But I see myself as a physicist, and I see myself as part of the community of physicists. And I know that when I tell people, you know, my name, comma, PhD, you know, they put me in the same place as everyone else. So they see me as part of the community of physics. So maybe you feel like you are part of the community, but you feel like sometimes your colleagues slash the U.S. government doesn't always see that. Right. They, yeah. don't, they don't agree with me in that. I'm just going to say, well, you're wrong. <laughs> like, I do have a PhD in physics, and I do work in a physics department, so it's yeah. kind of like your opinion is kind of irrelevant on this. Except for the U.S. government, their opinion is very relevant <laughs> um, in terms of immigration issues. Mm -hmm. um, but at, at the same time, I know the U.S. government takes their cue from uh, the professional societies. So if it's right. kind of common knowledge that, you know, to be a real mm -hmm. physicist, you have to be doing research in a research lab um, or be a professor with tenure, then the U.S. government is going to pick up on that. And that's where they base their, okay. you know, their judgment. What do you think makes a great scientist or a great physicist? Uh, I think a great physicist is someone who views the world as a physicist. So uh, you see patterns everywhere. You see Newton's laws everywhere. And you take that, I don't know how to say this, a curiosity, I guess, and with a background knowledge. So you can then apply it to specific professional trajectories. So you can take your knowledge of physics and your particular like physics goggles and expand our collective knowledge by doing research. Or you can teach that knowledge, what the knowledge that we have uh, up to now to future generations so that they can have the tools to then expand the knowledge. Or you can like, communicate to the lay public, so someone who is not one to be doing research, but they still need to know this is what we know so far. I mean, I'm, I'm not, this is not an exhaustive list of trajectories for physicists. Like any, mm -hmm. any other uh, job that would support, you know, using your physics goggles to, <laughs> uh, to either expand knowledge or disseminate knowledge would, would count as being a physicist. Um, so we have a very a unique perspective due to our professional training. So using that perspective in your job. What about being a great physicist? Being a great physicist would be someone who does all that, but also, I guess, inspires others to become, if not physicists, then kind of involved in the support of physicists, right? So not everyone has to be a physicist. If you don't want to be an architect, that's fine. Maybe an appreciation or something. Yeah, an appreciation yeah. Of, uh, of physicists and what we do and and our own unique perspective. And not just inspire us in a, you know, I think this person's awesome kind of way, but also helps set the tools for that whatever they're inspiring other people to do so that that can happen. So mm -hmm. whether you inspire little kids to grow up to be astronauts, we'll make sure that there's a path for them to become astronauts. If you inspire little kids to write to their politicians about climate change, then make sure that there's the tools that they can accomplish whatever you're inspiring them to do. So I yeah. think that would make someone great. I like that a lot. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Finally, what do you imagine the characteristics of a very healthy physics culture? Healthy physics culture, I think. A healthy physics culture 
in a way, we've heard this before in the sense that, you know, a place where, you know, ideas are what are criticized, not who they come from, or, or, you know, regardless of where they come from. And it's we evaluate ideas on their merit. And so a place where everyone feels safe, maybe not safe, or feels free to speak. Not everyone has to speak. You don't want to. But you feel free to and comfortable, you know, I have an idea, I wanted to make it known. And so you'll do it because you feel free and comfortable doing it. I think that that's what it would look like. And so whether you're talking to a Nobel Prize winner or your advisor or your fellow grad student, you would feel comfortable in the knowledge that whatever you say will be respected and that your ideas will, will be taking at face value, just evaluating what you said, not who you are. Cool. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, not really. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for inviting me. This is fun. Yeah, great. I'm I'm glad glad you enjoyed it. (laughs) All right, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach out about the project, please send an email to voicesinphysicspodcast at gmail.com.